Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. So I am not Dan Jackson, who is the great preacher. I'm not Jason Fullian, who has the great accent. So what is there left to take but David Gallagher, the great looking? <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> it is a blessing and a great pleasure to bring God's word to you this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11, looking at verses 1 through 11. So it's a, a fun one. Mark 1, 1, 1, 1, 1. <laughs> So church, I'm going to be honest with you. I skipped my quiet time the other day. It was a Saturday. When I woke up, I played with my daughter, Shiloh, who is a 10 out of 10, although I know I'm biased in 10 out of 10 ways. Afterwards, I had breakfast of blueberry biscuits with sweet drizzle icing and a donut. I doubled down. I kissed my wife, who is also a 10 out of 10, and I went out the door to spend some uh, time with some friends in the morning. I came home around noon, had a great lunch. It was a 60-degree day. It was last Saturday or so. So I took a walk with some family and some friends. I went out to dinner at Copper State, had a delicious burger with cheddar cheese and a garlic aioli, which is just a fancy way of saying mayonnaise. I got home. I put Shiloh to bed and watched HGTV with my wife. Church, if that is not the American dream, I don't know what is. Friends, family, beautiful weather, a little bit of TV, food with some sweet icing drizzle, and mayonnaise so good and so good tasting you have to pretend it's not mayonnaise. Church, I'm going to be honest with you. I had my quiet time the other day, and I really needed it. It was a Monday. On top of starting a work week, it was a day of fear and sadness in my heart, Because that evening, my wife and I were going to start sleep training for our daughter, Shiloh. So I love her so much, and I would never want her to feel abandoned, discomfort, tears, sorrow, and the list goes on and on. During sleep training, the idea is is that the child learns to fall asleep without relying on being held and rocked to sleep. So you sit them down, and you walk away, and you check on them every 5, 10, 15 minutes to assure them that everything is okay, And on average, a child during sleep training cries for about 40 to 250 minutes straight. I can't be there to stop the tears, to hold her, or to comfort her, aside from that 20-second check-in, 20-30 second check-in every 5, then 10, then 15 minutes. I prayed so much that day. I read psalms of comfort and trust that God is sovereign and that he loves me and he loves Shiloh. And we read Psalm 139 before putting her to bed, a psalm promising God is near us and that he knows us. These two stories probably illustrate most of us in our lives. We turn to our king and savior in times of need, but not necessarily in times of plenty. 
Sure, it's not that we wouldn't welcome his presence in the good times, but we sure don't seek him out like we do in the hard. And we certainly don't want him to take control away from us over the good times either. In our passage today, Jerusalem is much the same. Asking God for God's presence only when it is desperately needed. And that brings me to a question that Mark would have us ask for the day. What makes Jesus a better king in our lives? What makes him a better king in our lives? Not just in the bad times, but also in the good. So let's read our text, Mark 11, 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we will send it back immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them that Jesus, what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks in the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And we had looked around at everything. As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What makes Jesus a better king? We find our first answer in verses 1 through 8 of the text. Jesus and his disciples are nearing Jerusalem, and it's actually been a 21-hour day, or 21-mile walk uh, where they've gone from. But they stop at the Mount of Olives, which is a hill right outside Jerusalem, and it overlooks the entire city. So you can look down from the Mount of Olives, you see the, the Temple Mount, and you see the temple there. And Jesus foretells at the Mount of Olives that down below, there's a colt, a donkey in the village ahead, and he asks his disciples to go grab it. And not only does he foresee the donkey's location, he also foretells the response that will come when his disciples take the donkey. Even more specifically, though, Jesus mentions that this is a donkey upon which no one has ever sat in verse 2. These seem like such particular details to have right before Jesus enters Jerusalem. Why not just mention that Jesus rode in on a donkey into Jerusalem? Mark, the author of the book, wants us to explicitly understand two things. First, that Jesus is explicitly fulfilling some prophecies found in the Old Testament. But secondly, he wants the readers to know that Jesus, being able to foresee these things and foretell what is ahead... He wants the, his audience to understand that Jesus is in complete divine control of this moment. You see, Jesus was about to do something big. He was about to do something for which people had been waiting for for thousands of years. And for Jesus to commit to doing this, Mark wants to know that he is not doing this accidentally. He is in complete control of this moment. 
he was about to declare himself the Messiah King, which would make him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Isaiah mentions that this king would have a government of peace of which there would be no end. This is a statement that Jesus was making of ultimate control. And the disciples realized this. They responded by retrieving the donkey and spreading their cloaks, which was an action done for the crowning of a king. It had happened earlier in 2 Kings chapter 9. So what makes Jesus a better king? He is in complete control of every moment. He is in complete control of every moment. I've been told that there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who can watch season six, episode 12 of The Office, and those who can't. The title of that episode, Scott's Tots. At the beginning of this episode, viewers discover that Michael Scott wanting to bring some control into the chaos of the world, made a promise 10 years ago to a group of underprivileged children that if they graduate high school, he would pay for their college tuition. It is now 10 years later. Michael Scott has been asked to give a speech to this graduating high school class of students receiving this incredible award. But of course... Michael barely has enough money to pay for the books of one student for one semester. The situation is completely out of his hands. And the episode is a grueling experience for me personally and for the viewers as they watch Michael writhe on the inside, standing in front of the children, having to confess his ability to give them diddly. There are a certain number of moments in filmography that I just have to walk out of the room from pain, discomfort, or awkwardness. Elf is one of them, actually. There's just too many awkward moments. But in this moment, in the office, this is one of those moments. I can't stay in the room. I am one of the second half of people in the world who cannot watch season six, episode 12. Jesus is the anti-Michael Scott. He speaks with foreknowledge, and what he says will come true. Jesus makes a far better king and savior than Michael Scott. Praise God, because he is in control. Like the response of the disciples to spread their cloaks and claim Jesus as king, how might Jesus be a lord and a king, not just of the bad moments in your life, but of the good? Does it cause you fear or comfort to know that he is a king with ultimate control? Here might be an indicator of the good things in your life not being surrendered to God. What can you think of in this moment that is precious and dear to you that if you lost it, it would cost you everything? Whatever this is, this thing that is most important to you, it is probably something that you may not have wholly surrendered control to God. And when I say surrender, I don't mean lose it, but I mean entrust it to the Lord. I was thinking this past week about how hard it would be to lose my health uh, and how hard it would be to lose it permanently. So this is something that even in the good times, I realized that I need to entrust it to the Lord and say, God, it is yours. 
So pause for a moment and think, in this coming afternoon and evening, what fear might you give over to this king to rule? Contrasting this, what exciting thing is happening this very afternoon? And you can say, Lord, this too is yours. At this point, some of you may feel you're at a crossroads. You may push back against this as it is honestly the opposite of our cultural norms. So much in our life is spent in an effort to gain more control, not less, and now you need to surrender all of it. But for you to consider having any belief in Jesus and any surrender to him and any semblance of your life, it must be a surrender in its entirety. There is no partial surrender to a king who is in complete control. The following quote is a longer quote by C.S. Lewis, but it illustrates God's sovereignty and kingship in our lives so well and its benefit to us. So bear with me as I read it. There must be a real giving up of the self. You must throw it away blindly, so to speak. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. Your real new self, which is Christ's and also yours, and yours just because it is his, will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come only when you are looking for him. Does that sound strange? The principle holds, you know, for everyday matters. Even in social life, you will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you are making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas, if you simply try to tell the truth, you will nine times out of ten become original without ever having noticed it. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day, death of your whole body. In the end, submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever really be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. What makes Jesus a better king? He is in complete control. Praise God. Let's pause for a moment, though, and consider. So, David, what you're saying is that believing that Jesus is a better king and this mental act, just merely this mental act, will actually impact my life. Will your week ahead change that much with just a mental shift? So let's read on in our passage. And see what Mark writes in verses 9 through 11. Look with me again. We're going to read those three verses again. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, and they'd walked 21 miles, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So to answer this this second challenging question, the text needs a little bit of explanation first. Firstly, Hosanna, as Dan mentioned uh, when we were gathering this morning, means save us. But it is both a cry of adoration and a request for a saving rule. So here we have Jesus entering Jerusalem, 
surrounded by his disciples and onlookers, being cheered with cries of, praise us, save us, Hosanna. But we also see them saying what follows after. Blessed is he, they're saying this of Jesus, who comes in the name of the Lord. Followed by, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So roughly a thousand years prior to this particular moment in the triumphal entry, God made a promise to King David in 2 Samuel 7. And here is what God said to David in that moment. This is 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled, speaking to David, and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and, the estab- and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It has been, so 400 years after this promise, Israel went into exile. They were conquered by the Babylonians, Judah was, and they were sent into exile, and the last Davidic king was dethroned. So, 600 years later, we're moving forward now to this moment. Here at long last, Israel is receiving their anticipated king, Jesus, from the line is David. He is here to establish this eternal forever kingdom. But this moment is loaded with irony. Because Jesus is that long-awaited Davidic king and Messiah. He receives their recognition but not according to their expectations. It is a different salvation. One not from the Roman government that they maybe had anticipated. And when a king enters triumphantly, triumphant, when a king enters triumphantly into a city, what building would he go to? The palace. But Jesus doesn't go to the Antonia fortress. He doesn't go to the palace of Herod Antipas, nor even the palace of Herod the Great. Verse 11 tells us that he goes to the temple. What kind of kingdom would he establish? Jesus, Jesus went to the temple to say, I am here to establish a spiritual kingdom that would then transform the physical. Jesus came to establish a Davidic spiritual kingdom that this world, did, that this world needed far more than a physical government. He came to heal the turmoil in the hearts of man. He came to make a people his own. He came to remove the hearts of stone and give hearts of flesh. It is far easier to conquer the hands and heal the hands of man through a government, but it is far more challenging and impossible to heal in the hearts of man. And Jesus came to do both, but he came first to do it through the hearts. What makes Jesus a better king? He is the true Davidic king of a true spiritual kingdom. He is the true Davidic king of a true spiritual kingdom. Some of you may remember this, but I I worked for nine months in a car parts department for a dealership here in town. So naturally, I believe that I can fix anything as long as it's on YouTube, right? So that's the same as being a true mechanic, right? That's the same as having a car degree, Bachelor of Arts in Cars, the classic BAC. Anyways, one time I was trying to fix the brakes on my wife's car, Rondelet, and uh, a simple job. So I look at the wheel, it's pretty rusty. I got a wrench out to take the lug nuts off, and for those who may not know, 
the lug nuts are the car parts that hold the wheel onto the car, right? They screw onto the, yeah, the tires and hold the wheel there. Anyway, so I, I jacked the car up and thankfully managed to get all the lug nuts, lug nuts off. They weren't rusted on there, as I thought. All that's left is to take the wheel off. It's literally just the wheel in the car. I could just pull it off, right? And then I can get to the brakes. But the wheel refused to budge. So the way it was fitted on there, the rust had fused to the car of the wheel. So I tried WD-40. I tried an impact hammer. I laid down on the ground and just, boom, with all my might, kicked it. I would illustrate it here, but that would look weird. Um, I kicked it really hard. I hit that wheel so many times with my hammer in every location possible. It would not budge. So there's clearly, clearly only one option left. I had to drive the car without the lug nuts on it to shock the wheel loose. It's what any true mechanic would do, right? <laughs> so with a small measure of hesitance, I hop in the car, I put it in reverse, and I'm in my garage, uh, and, I, and I ever so slowly back up out of the garage. I make it out of the garage, I was just going straight, and the wheel still hasn't budged. But now I'm in the middle of my apartment parking lot blocking traffic. So I quickly put the car into drive, turn the wheel, put it on the gas, and ka-chunk. The car abruptly falls forward and slightly to the left as the wheel falls off. The story ends with me blocking traffic, jacking the car quickly back up, putting the wheel on, the lug nuts back on, and taking it to the closest mechanic down the road with a rhythmic, a rhythmic clunk, clunk, clunk coming from the front left of my wheel. Just as me fixing my car by driving it without lug nuts on the wheel was not going to work. Israel's belief that a political king would fix all that was wrong in their life was not going to work. What my car needed was an actual, true mechanic. What Israel needed was an actual, true, Davidic, spiritual king. Jacob's well. Jesus is your true and better king. He has taken his seat on the throne of his ancestor David, and he is ruling. We asked earlier, would believing that Jesus is actually, that Jesus is a better king, actually impact my life? You see, it would, but only if he came to be the true Davidic king. Only if he came not to transform your physical world by giving you more comfort, more ease, more pleasure, but if he came to transform your heart, Only if he came to rescue you from the power of sin and the power of death. No physical kingdom can fix the brokenness in your world as long as corruption still lies within your heart and sin and death remain unconquered. When you cry, Hosanna, I praise you, God, save me. From what are you asking God to save you? Do you do what I do? I cry to him saying, God, help me in this physical circumstance. Send me a savior. But what I actually need saving and rescuing from is not my circumstance, but my own sinful heart that is dissatisfied with my circumstance. James chapter 4 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your own passions are at war within you? 
And when this reality dawns on me, it is only then that I realize that this very thing that I need saving from, he's already sent the Savior to heal me from this. He's already sent the Savior to save me from my sinful heart. You may be sitting here, however, and you actually do need saving from your physical circumstance. Please don't hear me dismissing that. Your family feels broken. Your finances are in trouble once again. Your health is poor mentally or physically. Your loved ones are in pain and you are helpless to change it. Jesus as king in his first coming does not remove our suffering. But please do not despair. His promise of salvation is wider and broader than just the removal of your sin. His promise of salvation includes giving you his very self, his very life, and it includes a peace that surpasses understanding in these trials. And one day, the promise will come true in Revelation 21, where Jesus, our King, declares once and for all, behold, I am making all things new. But until then, until that moment comes, we are to be cautious to not make the mistake of Jerusalem, believing that Jesus came to set up a kingdom only of the kind that we had envisioned. Theologian Michael Williams summarizes this well when he says, the kingdom of God is about salvation, the return of health, the removing of the corruption of sin, and restoring man in the entirety of his existence in the new heavens and the new earth, including his bodily existence. Church, will you look with me one more time at verses 9 through 10? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Will you do something with me? Will you say that with me one more time in a loud voice? That verses 9 through 10, starting with Hosanna. Let's say that together. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus is your true and better king. He is in complete control of every moment. He has taken his seat on the throne of his ancestor David and has established a true and better spiritual kingdom. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you came to do so much more than establish merely a government or a physical kingdom, Lord. You came to do more than give us earthly comfort, ease. God, you came to redeem us, the brokenness in our hearts, to transform our world and our hearts, Lord, that we might begin to be your hands and feet to now then impact the world. Lord, guide us by your spirit that we may walk with this in the coming week. We pray in your name, amen.